Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Lit Breaker. Lit Breaker is an online advertising network for book people. It's a way to get your message out to book people on the internet. Do you want to get your message out to book people on the internet, bookish people, literary people, people who like books? Go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Paris Review, Electric Literature, the list goes on. Lit Breaker. It's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, here we right. go again. This is right. this. This is Other People. This is the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. I have a bit of a cold. I don't know if you can hear it. I'm a little bit under the weather. What's interesting is that, you know, just the other day, uh, we had a plumber here. Uh, it's like a long story, but basically there was a gas leak. We had to turn off the gas. We had to have a plumber come to test the lines before the gas company would turn the heat back on. It's this whole big uh, ordeal that lasted three days, which happened to be like the coldest days of the year in Los Angeles. So our house was freezing. Uh, the plumbers couldn't find the leak, and then they could find the leak, and then they couldn't find the leak, and the gas company kept coming and then going. And then, you know, it just it was a saga that unfolded over three days, during which time our, our house was like something like a refrigerator, at least at night and in the early morning. And uh, at one point, the plumber, or one of the plumbers, we had multiple plumbers here, but one of the plumbers was uh, with me. And we were standing in the bathroom together <laughs> uh, because he was analyzing the plumbing uh, in the bath. This isn't going well, but you know what I'm saying? Like we were standing there talking and uh, I said to him, yeah, it's really cold in here. I hope I don't get sick, you know, but I haven't gotten sick in a while. It's been a long time. And then I said to him, I said, I shouldn't have said that. And I, I, you know, I don't even know if I knocked on wood, but I was like, I just jinxed myself. And sure enough, not not like 24 hours later, uh, I had a cold, which you can now hear, I think. So I'm hopped up on cold meds. I'm a believer in cold meds. When, when you're the most symptomatic, just take the fucking cold meds. Alleviate the symptoms a little bit. You know, I mean, I'm all for the natural approaches, but don't eat a bunch of garlic when you're miserable. 
Put some ephedrine in your body. So uh, we have heat again. That's good. The gas is back on, but we still have some plumbing issues in terms of uh, some knocking pipes. There's a, a pipe knock, if I can use that term that we're trying to address. It's, it's a kind of a, a mystery. You know, you have to figure out how it's happening so that the plumber can fix it. So I had a plumber out here today, very nice, uh, guy. And he comes in and he's got to go up into the attic, like our hot water heaters in our attic, which is sort of a random arrangement, but that's how uh, the house was built. And so we go up there with a ladder and I noticed that this guy's in a flop sweat. And, uh, he confesses to me that he's terribly scared of heights and it's really not, I mean, it's not even that high up. I mean, you're, you're just climbing up a ladder into an attic, but it was on the second floor. So he could see down, I guess guy was a mess. I almost wanted to just send him home. I mean, I felt like he was almost in tears. You know, it's like, I, I don't think I have any, uh, fears like that trying to think if I have a phobia that matches that. I don't have that. I don't think, but I know what it feels like to be so scared. Like you're just so uncomfortable. You're almost about to cry. (laughs) Uh, that's how he was. He was almost in tears, but he, he made it. He got up there. I kept checking on him. I held the ladder for him when he came down. I didn't want him to panic and fall. You know, I also thought, uh, you know, you get into these scenarios in your head. I was thinking like, what if he has a heart attack while he's up there? And I actually ran through this in my head. I imagined myself climbing up the ladder, you know, like, you know, sort of scrambling across the beams to get to him at the far end of the attic, giving him a, you know, CPR, calling the paramedics. He dies. And then it's like, oh, how do you get his body out of there to feed the body out of the attic? I had that whole train of thought going. It's getting ahead of myself. So happy holidays. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying the, how's that for a segue? Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, there are a lot of cold meds, maybe not the greatest amount of sleep waking up in the middle of the night. What I don't like is that the nighttime mucinex that I've been taking only lasts for four hours. That's not good enough. I need like, give me a solid, like eight at least. I don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night and take more. I don't want it to wear off, you know? Apparently my wife said that last night, uh, we were talking in bed and I basically just passed out right in front of her, which is very much not like me. I was like mid conversation and all of a sudden I was just out, which I attribute to the cold meds. I attribute this entire monologue to the cold meds. I hope you're reaping the benefits of, uh, my medicine intake. All right. Let's see. Yeah, I get nothing. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, should we get should we get to the show? Should we get to the interview? Shall we uh, move this thing along? Adam Soldovsky is my guest. He's a poet, uh, and he's got a new collection out called Memory Foam, available now from Disorder Press. I'm holding it in my hands right now. Listen to me flip the pages. What do you think of that? It's called Memory Foam. It's by Adam Soldovsky. I had a very nice time talking with Adam. Uh, he was over here uh, about a month ago, I think. I think I, I want to say we recorded this the day before the election, back when the world was still, when there was still like a ray of sunlight in the world <laughs> before we turned to the dark times. Uh, so here we go. Let's get to the conversation. This is Adam Soldovsky, and his new poetry collection is called Memory Foam. <laughs> I just don't think that the nerd rage would be any different from some bro rage and some That's bro, right. bro rising That's right. to the top of some other industry. That's and right. Feeling. Uh, but Steve Jobs is kind of that, though. Whereas, I mean, well, he was sort of like, I don't know, maybe he was good socially, but um, there's a lot of dysfunction. I guess it's all the same shit. You know? I don't like the idolatry of Jobs or any of these guys at all. It's just, it's too weird to me because it's like, back to what I was saying, I feel like we forgot that these were mega uh, multinational corporations with tremendous uh, uh, levels of sort of influence on global economies and enormous uh, uh, extractors of raw materials from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So just because this guy is charismatic and a genius, you know, we should be able to to have the, hold the two together in our minds as consumers and to understand that we're you know we that we we appreciate it and we're also guilty in some sense by because we are because they're like 12 year olds making our iPhones in China or whatever whatever rare earth extraction is taking <laughs> place for for us to be able to refresh 538 you know yeah um i think we we just shouldn't get too comfortable, uh, uh, or we sh- we shouldn't uh, on balance always think about the the charisma of, of these geniuses or the uh, radical new benefits. So, what was it like for you? Because clearly, as a, as a child raised in Silicon Valley, uh, it, it, it's had quite a grip on you. You you left, moved to Los Angeles, and are a poet. Well, so before that, I went to New York City, you know, for ten years too, but. Um, uh, the thing about 
being raised in Silicon Valley, it's probably not so different than being raised in Los Angeles where the industry is the entertainment industry and there's uh, a tremendous amount of mystery and, and focus from the rest of the world directed at where you live, but you aren't participating. Yeah. And so, you know, we, I would have friends whose parents maybe, or somebody worked, you know, in those industries. And before it was uh, computer industries, it was aerospace there. So that was uh, the beginnings of that. Probably there's aerospace here too. Right. 10 years before semiconductors, you know, it was aerospace, but that proceed that predates me. But anyway, somebody's family worked for, you know, you know, Hewlett Packard or somebody, uh, or somebody had a job as routine as assembly, you know, putting together computers. Uh, those people do not, uh, they don't come into contact with the, you know, the charismatic genius and they, none of the shine from the, from the new technology really rubs off on them. They're essentially just like any other working person. And the other thing about uh, the corollaries between this area and that is that the, a lot of the economy is just has nothing to do with it. Um, and there's a lot of uh, new Americans trying to operate in those, you know, unlooked at places. And that was pretty much what I grew up with. So, no, you know, people were talking about the Internet but probably no different than people were talking about the internet anywhere else in the country because we just didn't have anything to do with it as far as developing it. Okay. So when would it like your family situation, your parents didn't work in technology? No, my father is a, uh, he actually is a, a poet himself and he directs an MFA program now at San Jose state. He wasn't at that point he was, he was, uh, he was a professor and, you know, in the CSU system, you know, trying to, to hang on basically, you know, um, and my mother was an eligibility worker and then, a uh, a, a manager for a benefits office out of Santa Clara County. So, I mean, you could be those two things in any city or, you know, uh, any university town in this country. So again, and you just happen to be in Silicon Valley, right? So the thing about Silicon Valley, um, maybe for me more so than what, theoretically was happening there, you know, the exciting things that were happening there, uh, is, uh, it's a, a strange admixture of this technology, uh, the propaganda of it being pumped at you. And of course the rest of the world too, but also a sort of, uh, a nostalgia for an old California because this was an agrarian place. Supposedly it was a beautiful place. Uh, before we, you know, before it really turned into what it is. Oh my God. California is like Eden or was like Eden. Well, that's what constantly got invoked all the time. If you read about, you know, that area, particularly, it's just always described in those sort of idyllic paradisal terms, right? What you see, even when I was a kid and, and even more so now when I go back is a sort of ghosts of that place hanging around these strangest places, strangest uh, locales. For example, uh, in, in its heyday, it was a town of orchards, you know, and it was all all different kinds of, of fruits and vegetables just growing, right? Of course, that's not the case now, but uh, a lot of the branding is stayed so that you'll have an apartment complex called Orchard Valley or cherry cherry this or apricot grove or something like that 
there won't, there wouldn't have been apricots in that you know part of the city for a hundred years or something like but that. But now this like prefab condominium complex, right? You know, so it's it's really still trading off of the 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 mystique of that old place and trying to uh, trying to borrow some of the innocence of it. Uh, but it, it it just is not there at all, except for some of the some of the landscape you just you you cannot deny the beauty of it some of the valleys driving through it's wonderful but contraposed to the most banal track housing and and mall developments etc so for me that was always sort of at the level of consciousness even if i couldn't articulate it when i was you know a young person but it was encroaching on you as you were being as you were uh growing up i mean it was it was probably more idyllic when you were young than it is now right it's it's obviously been developed quite a bit maybe so but um i have to i have to be honest like i wasn't interested in you know that kind of beauty you know at when i was growing up i was interested in like trying to find a place kind of a cultural place for myself there and it didn't have anything to do with natural landscape at all or or uh, uh the history of that region yeah. it had more to do with how do i um how do i uh find the right sort of people the you know the the most uh attractive sort of subculture to join you know and that was really what <laughs> carried my focus as a young person did you, what did you find well the thing about uh, uh, California in general, uh, and in that area particularly is just the amount of diversity. We're just lucky to have it as a kid, you know, even if that means, uh, like being like, uh, a white boy everywhere you go, you know, uh, for me, it, it had tremendous benefits. So like what? Well, for example, um, we moved from Oakland, right? I was five. Uh, the first day, you know, we got there, we pulled up at this house, right. Which is probably now worth a fortune and there's nothing to it either. Right. Um, and this kid is, is, you know, riding his scooter up and down the street and, uh, he rolls up in the, in the driveway and he's like, Oh, you're moving in. Uh, I'm right down the street, you know, come on down. Right. And that day or some other day. I go over there and there's this music on and there's these other kids, these older kids, and they're all dancing. And, and this is all like nothing you've ever seen before. People are spinning on their heads and doing, you know, back break, break dancing. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Like this is obviously the best thing to, to try to get into. So let me do that. And it was like that, you know, uh, how can, how can, Sherry Orchards compete with, you know, right. Breakdancing. It can't, not at that point. And, yeah. so, and so that was there, you know? So while, uh, while other people, grown ups were, you know, perfecting some sort of, uh, uh, hardware or, and our friends, parents were working in some corollary industry. We were trying to, you know, do the caterpillar or, or yeah, or, or just anything, right. Anything that was like somebody else thought was cool or you had, you know, saw some kid doing in the parking lot of a mall or something like that. Well, it's interesting too, that your dad's a poet and that you turned out to be a poet. Uh, I know this happens, this happens in families all the time, but I don't often hear of it happening 
like poet to poet. It's a, I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody that's been in that situation. Mm -hmm. He must've been uh, a big influence on you. Well, how could he not? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it would be, it would be completely ridiculous to sort of deny that it didn't have anything to do with a sort of, uh, 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 pleasing him in some way. Right. Even if it comes after a long period of like, you know, rebellion, but was there a long period sure, of rebellion? Like sure. aesthetic rebellion or just like the oh, whole no. thing? Oh, no. I mean, uh, well, one could argue that a, a rebellion with their parents is always an aesthetic rebellion, <laughs> but not about poetry until, you know, until I was 18 years old when I really probably had the confidence to tell him I was doing it. Um, but, uh, uh, the, it, it, yeah, it's clear that it has something to do with approval, but, um, that was the last thing I thought I would do, you know? So here we are doing it now and it's great that, that he and I both do it. But, uh, at the time, uh, it was sort of, uh, uh, a surprise and almost like a sort of <laughs> an embarrassment, you know, that I wanted to do it too. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean, you know, what is it? DNA? Like what, what was it? Like, can you trace your interest in it back to a certain, uh, text or an event, or is it just some natural inclination? No, well, I think it, no, it's untraceable to an individual event. Um, and and I should put a word in for my mom here. <laughs> you know, yeah. she she's been a reader too. You know, and she uh, since she my parents are from the Midwest. Where from Iowa? Oh, okay. And my dad is from. I, I mean, he's not born in Iowa. He was born in Arkansas, but they they were raised in Iowa. My father in Iowa City, and my mother in. Uh, Burlington, Iowa, which is much smaller. Uh, you know, my dad knew he wanted to write. My mom didn't know what she wanted to do, but she did want to read books when she was a young person. And she would tell me about how they would, you know, a certain teacher would suggest a book, something that it was a scandal to be reading at the time, maybe Kerouac or something. And she would get on a bus and go get it, you know. Uh, so... I have to, I, you know, it's very easy to point to my dad, but it's there in both of them. They, they both are. You were doomed from the start. Right. <laughs> I, I have to thank them, you know, in, in the most sarcastic way for this life. <laughs> <laughs> what about siblings? You got any siblings? Yeah, I have a younger brother and he is, you know, if he were sitting here, he'd have, you know, more intelligent things to say than me. And, and he's a, he wouldn't confess this, you know, but he's a fantastic writer. But oh, yeah. Um, uh, is he doing it or is he like, he's kind of like, you know, well, I don't want to put him on the, on blast too hard, but, um, you know, if he wanted to, I think he could do it. Um, maybe he'll, maybe he'll want to with more, you know, enthusiasm at some point and he'll write something, Yeah, you know? but he's, you know, four years younger than me. So some time for him. Yeah. He's got time. Right. And, uh, but, uh, as far as what, why you end up doing the thing your dad does. I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with po- it being poetry and, and more to do with whatever is sort of reverberating in the house you grow up on. And if your father is, um, you know, was your dad like reading his stuff to you or like reading other people's stuff? Well, or? what you, what you have is a house full of books and records. Um, my dad is working a job where famous poets, I mean, who's a famous poet to a, to a 13 year old, you know, I, but that doesn't influence you, actually. I don't think that there's an idea like someone will make a suggestion to you. Hey, this person is, you know, a big deal. 
uh, and the fact that they're a big deal makes you want their attention, but you don't know anything about them as a kid. So I don't think that really makes a difference. I think it just has to do with walking into your house, seeing books everywhere. Just having it be in the ether. Yeah, having somebody, for better or for worse, privilege this thing, really uh, uh, devote his life to it in front of you. Yeah. To make it seem like it's worthy of, of something like that, even if even if uh even if it's a frustration for you. So that was happening in my house. And so uh I suppose that you can trace any sort of uh development from me it just to the atmosphere. Hey, there's worse legacies. You know? <laughs> I mean like in terms of like a trade to pass on or like a, a way of life or a way of dealing with life. I think like passing on a literary legacy is a noble thing to do. Well, you know, I, I don't think he had not at least when I was a teenager, no, any hope of doing that, <laughs> but, uh, in the, uh, not to, not to tell his business either, but my father's father was an economist who would have preferred that my dad do something more practical. Well, sure. Uh, who also as a younger person, my grandfather wrote his poems, you know, and took it, you know, loved certain poets that my father would have found really detestable, like <laughs> Tennyson or somebody. And uh, to the point where he actually, whether he had some sort of subterranean communication to my dad to do this thing or not, when he passed away. So your grandfather, the economist, had a poet, like had a Jones for poetry, but then suppressed it to become an economist. Be, to be, well, that's a long story, but but um, it has to do with coming up through the depression and trying to take care of your family. Well, sure. And eventually becoming a, an economist. But before that, you know, joining the armed forces and you know these sort of things that you know are smart choices if you if you're basically doing everything for yourself. So uh, yeah, no. But then finally, <laughs> in, in, instead of having in, in his when he when he passed away, he had he's an organized person, so he had the thing all laid out for what was to happen, and he had these poems of his that he had written in when he was a younger person, and he wanted us to read them, and uh, yeah, that's the first time. Are I they were, any good? Well, yeah, they were good if they were good objectively, right? But what they were, especially the one I was slated to read, which which was the, it was the first time I'd ever seen this thing. Uh, it was handed to me. And as I'm reading it, I'm realizing how uh, ruthless it is, you know, and how, 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 I mean, it, it was, I don't remember the language in it specifically. What I remember was um, it was not, it didn't make nice with death at all. And, and I'm supposed to be reading this, you know, right after his death. At a funeral. He, which he knew. Right? Yeah. So... By the uh, way, stage, like really like planning out your own yes. funeral, stage managing it. That's interesting. Well, it, it, to call it a funeral would, would be a, a misnomer. It was a sort of a reception after, after, uh, the actual, you know, logistics of burial. It was, a, it was the reception part of it, but yes, he had it planned out. He, he had things he wanted my father to read and say, and my, myself and my brother too. What my brother was handed was remarkably, lighter in tone than mine. <laughs> he, gave so, you, he gave you the heavy lift. <laughs> yes, he did. I don't know if he was, you know, uh, 
who knows? There's no, there's no way to read into the significance of having been given that one. But anyway, yes. So that comes as a surprise. So I, I don't know the, the, the sort of the concept of passing something along. Um, yeah. Whether it clearly runs deep in your family generationally. I guess so. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm not, I'm not, uh, dismissive of it as a, as a, as a lineage, but I'm also sort of, uh, I want to, I want to, uh, make it a more modest thing in our family than maybe it, it appears to be since we're all doing it, you know, that it's just happened. It's more of a coincidence. Maybe we could have all been Masons or something. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about, uh, what about the period of rebellion that you've referred to a couple of times? Was it, in, was it as intense as it, uh, sounds or like what happened? Well, you know, my parents got a divorce. Um, that'll do it. And, and that, that is just the thing about all, you know, my problems are the, are the problems of somebody who's had good luck, you know, and good fortune. So, to talk about it being like extremely hard and to be a cataclysm is it makes me feel like I should you know not call it that, but it was at the time for me. Sure, it was. How old were you? Twelve, I suppose. So, so, uh, you know, no one. You're a kid. No one's telling you the truth about exactly why what whatever is happening is happening. And you're reading a lot, making a lot of inferences, and uh, you. Not that you are deciding who to 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 pledge your loyalty to, but it sort of happens that one parent or another may or may not antagonize you during that time, and then you may you you you're a person uh, uh, put in an adversarial position. Maybe sure, yeah. So that happened, and and uh, it lasted throughout my teens, I guess. You know, and it's like. Hey, it could have happened, and they, whether or not they have it a force, you know, this happens all the time. I hear <laughs> it's called. Yeah, I mean, it's like well, hormones. I mean, those years are fraught, no matter what. But I don't think that uh, mm. your parents splitting up makes it any easier. No, but I had, you know, I had a lot of friends, in one way or another, sort of having these things, having daddy issues or whatever, um, and it was all different variations, right? Someone's dad was really sick. Someone's dad was never there someone's dad uh was there too much well no <laughs> not that no i think that that per that person would have been the healthiest probably but that that person didn't exist among my peer group there was any there was many iterations of it and mine was just you know my version of it so um uh, poetry was like you know, a great way to reconcile us. So I could give it that if this never turned into anything for me, that would have been helpful. I think as a symbol, a symbol of repair. Yeah. That's cool. So, I mean like, but, but like during those years it served as a way or no. it's like after the fact, no, no, no. During those years, it was like, there was no communication, like, like no, no. Were you living with your mom? Yeah. So I was, I was with my mom most of the time during that time, uh, and gradually, you know, I, I just figured out, you know, what I, I guess, you know, I, I figured out more of what I wanted, you know, uh, decided that I wanted to go to college and, uh, where'd you go? Oh, well, it's, I started by, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't graduate with good grades. I hardly graduated. Um, 
so I had to go to junior college, um, and uh, which was, you know, it's a good thing, a really good thing for me. And uh, why was, is that? Well, it was. It's like okay, you, uh, you are told something over and over again, which is that education is gonna is gonna liberate you. Hmm. But there are people telling you this, and you're going to high school, and then that's not your experience, right? Um, And then, for me at least, magically, when I went to college, it was true. So, began to believe in it, you know? Like, what was it? Like, give me an experience that you had that made it feel so liberating. I I don't know. Maybe just, like, I had a teacher who was like, you know, if you don't want to come to any of these classes, you're fucking paying for it, so that's your problem, you know? And, uh... I'm not going to treat you like a kid. And it was like, Oh great. You know, I don't want to be treated like a kid. And, uh, let me try on some of the trappings of like adulthood. I mean, responsibility. I shouldn't really say adulthood at all, but, um, that paired with like, uh, somebody, uh, telling you, uh, about a specific, if you're in a history class learning about something very specific, or if you're, uh, in a political science class and having to think about uh, the larger world and, and, and it actually involves you, you know, it doesn't, doesn't dismiss you because you're a child, you know, you don't have, uh, you're, it's not for you yet. In high school, I believe you, you're just talked to like a child, uh, even when you're talked to about history and politics. And then magically you're a year older and it, now it really does involve you. So. These lines of demarcate, they're pretty, they're pretty, uh, silly, you know, like all of a sudden, like you're 18, you're, I mean, I guess we have to designate it somewhere, but right. I agree with you on that. You, I mean, not that you have to, but that legally that's what we do. But when I, when I, when I talk about education, I just mean that I think that, um, I just, there's a there's a there's a, a major difference between educating a child and educating an adult in our country, and, and you can feel it uh, when it hap- when it starts to happen. I just read something. I read something in the paper just a few days ago about this like private school. It's extremely expensive in like Santa Barbara County. Did you read this? No. <laughs> oh, it's like all the kids like basically have to like chop wood and like light fires and cook their own meal. Like they're basically treated very much like adults Mm. and it's sort of like this really outside uh, of the box educational experience, but yet they graduate students who go on to Ivy league schools at like a pretty astonishing rate. Like, so they do very well, but they're given an enormous amount of, um, agency and responsibility at a young age. sounds like you would have enjoyed that. Most well, people know if you would have asked me to chop wood, that would have been, <laughs> I, that would have been a, a mistake. Don't uh, give this kid an no, ax. No, definitely not. I, yeah. So yeah, take away the ax that I already had, but, but, uh, uh, no, I mean, something a little less drastic would, uh, than, than asking for a level of self-sufficiency that by the way, many adults do not, maintain now yeah. I mean, i'm not not chopping my wood i, I mean maybe you are and i built sh- this entire you place. should be proud <laughs> of what you've achieved with your you know, uh with your axe but uh uh no how about um uh how about provoking uh how about how about having a discussion uh about something serious that leads to an impasse and not a nice resolution for a for a young person and just 
see how that goes. Because I don't think that, I mean, I could be incorrectly recalling those years, but um, that didn't seem like it happened very much. There was a lot of answers, you know. Telling you how it is. Maybe, you know, or being afraid to, being afraid to uh, complicate things to the point of, of uh, causing a crisis in your, you know, for you as a, as a thinker. But that's not a bad thing. No, I don't think so. Of course, I don't. There's an expert to contradict this, I'm sure, about what a child should be thinking. But if you're already a kid who is exposing themselves, at least on the level of ideas and images, to the rest of the adult world, the so-called nefarious part of it, that actually once you become adult, you quite enjoy you know, the, the sex and the intoxication, why can't you also have the other part, which is the, you know, the stymieing and muddy part. Uh, Existential questions and... Well, not even just that. Like, how about um, the... If if we're going to talk about politics the night before an election... Let's, yeah, we are recording this the night before the election. Let's not talk about it too much, but the idea of something is... Something as abstract as as an individual's rights versus a, the rights of a group or something like that. That, that is like a, a central preoccupation of mine. Okay, so that would be nice to. I mean, I don't know. It, the, here's the problem, Brad. Is like it's it's really a revision of a revisionist idea of who I was. Like if some educator would have been like, you know, let's talk about this thing, and I, and there's some version of me that's not like, oh fuck off, you know. Uh, <laughs> I hope there is, you know, but I'm not too confident actually. Yeah. So anyway, but what, what I remember about childhood is about how much, how much it is impressed upon you that you are a child continuously yeah, and like, how, how that shifts when you, when you pass the magic line into adulthood. And what did you, uh, like, you know, you were, you weren't, you were not a good student. Were you getting into trouble otherwise? Yeah. You know, but not any kind of trouble that's like that interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, I certainly knew people that were in a lot more trouble than I no, was. No felonies. No, <laughs> no. And, and that's, that happens, that has to do a lot with, you know, you know, me being a, uh, a middle-class white person, I'm pretty sure, you know, based on my experience. So I'm lucky that in that way, I could have, you know, something. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, embarrass myself by giving the details, but I'm pretty sure that that has something to do with it. Sure. Um, so yeah, no felonies and, and, and no criminality that is not the result of, uh, uh, sort of honest rebellion or whatever. And then what about culturally? Like as you're coming out of this, like high school, you know, the high school years and transitioning into college and sort of um, coming alive intellectually or whatever, like, was there, uh, were there certain artists or certain kinds of art that you were responding to most intensely at that age? I mean, I, the, I don't, I don't want to seem more of a sophisticate than I was, but I, um, I mean, the things, the things that I still like now, I think were starting to appear. Music was always a big deal, you know? Um, and to the point where, uh, well, 
many people might have this feeling about themselves, but I think that I was an insufferable, <laughs> uh, sort of a snob, you know, in, 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 a, in those ways, you know, and what were you into? You, well, you... there was this sort of esoterica, uh, at the beginning of, of, it's about like finding this thing that nobody knows about and, uh-huh. and then letting it represent you, which I think a lot of young men have done. It was music, 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 (laughs) especially in in this like 18 to 24 age window, like music is culture as a uh, social currency. You know, I I saw this band before they, you know, before anybody knew who they Mm -hmm. were. I've been to X amount of shows. I have, you know, all that kind of stuff really mattered at that age. It mattered so much. It was this enormous thing. Uh, We, my friends and I were all, uh, it's funny because we're in the Bay Area, but we're all focused on these like uh, underground LA rappers and, um, you were into hip hop. Is that, yeah, like... I mean, I was into more than that, but I, I think that that really represent represented who we were as a group. And we were looking for these rappers that displayed this kind of virtuosity and like wild psychedelic imagination. That was the, the counterpoint to some sort of mainstream, uh, music and we would sort of like who can you give me well there's a for anybody who wants a perfect example of what uh uh, came out of la during the late 90s uh there's a group called log cabin who is a now you can find everywhere on the internet but before it was just a bunch of cassette tapes that somehow appeared and whoever had them was like this sort of you know I don't know, some sort of uh, witch doctor. Like, how did you get that tape? You know? And uh, uh, it has this... Cassette tapes. Yes, yeah. it was it, like, <laughs> it was literally... All the cliches about it are uh, stand-up. It's like a kid with like a boombox in the parking lot after school with this tape, and he's playing his tape, and you're like, the fuck is that? That's so great. And uh, you, he don't want to tell you the name, and you have to like persuade him and then finally or somebody's more likely it was somebody's older brother and somebody's older brother's like fine just shut up here's the fucking tape yeah and then you have the tape and you dub it for everybody now everybody has the tape um in your group but nobody else knows who these people are and and that's what makes you more unique than somebody else it's totally ridiculous right but um so so yeah there's there's lots of there's lots of uh groups and individual rappers or whatever that we were sort of uh listening to and trying to trying to uh i guess claim uh but at the same time uh in my house you know my dad would have a bob dylan record on or something i was going to ask you what as a poet what do you think of bob dylan winning the nobel (laughs) Uh, the best um the best piece of critique i've read about it comes from an old friend of mine from new york this my friend jerome i should shout him out um he was saying that the the one thing that concerns him about it is just um what reason would um the nobel committee have to give a writer the award ever again because the force of music is clearly it it, it's a, a larger thing this one might rile somebody up but worldwide you know these people mean so much right sure and they have at their disposal their instrument and the sonics of their voice and their writing combined and his point was that if this was 
if if we were going to go down this road, you know, why should a writer ever win it again? Why should a novelist win it again? And he was making an, an argument for uh, recognizing writing specifically the constraints that writers are under in awarding the best achievement in that. You know, saying here's somebody without the aid of uh, a beautiful singing voice and without the aid of a wonderful Fender, you know, Stratocaster. This is somebody doing it, you know, in this place on the page, and that's what we're that's what we're recognizing. I see that. I mean, you know, because I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, so I'm happy that he. You're always happy when an artist that you like is recognized. But that is a persuasive argument. And, and I, I've also said in the past, unrelated to the Nobel conversation, you know, music feels like the highest art, or at least it's the quickest to the vein. It's so powerful. Like you go to a concert, especially, and you're in uh, some sort of communion with the other people in the audience and then the musician up on stage. And you're just like, my God, especially as somebody who sits in front of a laptop by yourself, you know, <laughs> it's a lot less sexy. You know what I'm saying? Like a, as, a, as a as a uh, process of creation, yeah, and, and also yeah, and also delivery. I mean, just the yeah. whole experience, and it's just uh, right. What, to, what what a gift to be able to make music and sing and all that kind of stuff. Right. I think I, I mean you should do a poll of writers to just find out how many of them would have rather become musicians. Well, or... and look at actors; they do it all the time. Everybody, yeah. every that's what I that's why I say it's the highest art. It's like everybody, no matter even if they are an artist of some kind, and even if they're very successful, if you said to them listen, I can make you a rock God, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Most people would take that deal in a second. I would take the deal. I would take the deal. It begs the question whether, why anybody, uh, I have an answer to this question, but why anybody would prefer the, the quieter thing. But the answer is implied there. Some, you just, you can't be listening to music all the time. Well, some people, I suppose, do. Uh, music, I will say, well, you know, I mean, the really great songs stick to us, but there is something, there is a depth charge that I get from great literature that works on me in a much different way. And, you know, I, I guess I would argue that it's ultimately the most powerful. You have to work the hardest for it. Like music's easy. Music washes over you. You turn on the stereo. It's a three minute experience, you know, mm -hmm. like you have to sit down with a, uh, a book of poetry or a novel that is a participatory creative exercise, you know, and I guess, you know, some music really challenges us and we have to participate. You know, you always have to meet art halfway in some manner, mm -hmm. but you know, with literature, I feel like if you, um, find yourself up against a work that really resonates with you, that the impact is maybe deeper and more lasting. Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask with the last part of it. I certainly am on board with the idea that that there are different physical processes in your body being engaged when you have one or the other thing. Um, and I do think there is something to, uh, there's two imaginations. There's the, the passive imagination and the active imagination, which is not my idea. That's a... That's a, a pretentious steal from like John Keats, but but it I believe it. Um, and uh, so, the, but the question as to uh, what is going to impact you, uh, or what 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 leads to a more enlightened person, I couldn't tell you. I just happen to you know like both, and I think there's a context for both, 
and I would say, make me a, a wonderful musician tomorrow, and I'll stop the poetry. Are you a, but so you don't have any musical gift? No instruments? No. Never tried to pick up a guitar? No, or? I mean, of course I tried, but, you know, no. Can't sing? No. Well, uh, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> um, what about performing your work? Well, the, the, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to even describe as a performance, you know, it doesn't feel like a performance. It feels like a recitation. Uh, but I mean, do you get like, cause some, I, I've had poets on this show and I know I have friends who are poets who, you know, they get up there and they really have uh, a stage presence and a theatrical delivery. And all <laughs> I probably don't, yeah. you know, but, uh, um, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't think you have to be, um, uh, the kind of that can uh, uh, sing and 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 also read your your work, um, but I also don't think that everybody's work is well represented off the page, you know, just in just being heard. So whether I fall into that category or not, I just feel like it's okay, you know, for for some writers to not be as good as performers. Well, it's funny that you say you know some work off the page doesn't work as well. I would argue, especially when we, you know, to circle back to the Nobel argument that a lot of Bob Dylan's work as a Nobel laureate now sort of dies on the page. You know, you look at it, you're like, oh, well, this sounds a lot better when he's got a Fender Stratocaster sure. and an accompanying band and, yeah. you know, and, and it's like all of its profundity and everything is sort of relying upon that production. And that's not to denigrate it. It's just to say it's different, you know, and like, you know, you can take, uh, I guess you could take maybe a, a more average piece of poetry. And when you add these other elements, it elevates it and, sure. and it's, and it is truly profound, sure. but without those other elements, it's not happening. No, I don't think so. I think if you want to make the case for Bob Dylan, uh, you can, it's not, I remember when they announced it, um, that some people took a lot of offense to, uh, uh, for a number of reasons, one being what I, what, you know, my stolen insight from my friend, but, um, uh, the one it's like, there could have been so many others that you decided to give this to. So why did, why was Bob Dylan the, the musician and not somebody prior to Bob Dylan, like one of the great bluesmen or something, you know, and there doesn't seem to be an answer for that. Yeah. Um, a satisfying one. Well, it also makes me think like, um, you know, the Nobel, I, I think the Nobel has made great efforts to sort of, uh, spread the wealth in terms of geography and, and in terms of rep, you know, writers representing a wide variety of nations. I mean, was, this is the first American to win in 23 years, right? Every, which yeah. feels good to me. Cause I mean, you know, there are writers working all over the world. I, we, I don't think we should have any dominion. Um, but if you start to think about if the door is now swung wide open, and musicians are in the mix. Um, you go back to hip hop, you know, the music of your youth or whatever. <laughs> like, who do you think, like, who, who can you imagine might be a hip hop Nobel laureate? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like that genre to have this, to, to try to, to answer this question. It, it's impossible. Kanye. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely Kanye. He should. It's like Obama would get his Peace Prize right after he was elected president. So Kanye in twenty twenty. Well, <laughs> right. um, 
but uh, no, I just, I don't think it's a fair conversation. I don't think it's a fair uh, thing to ask uh, that genre to aspire to. Why? And why? It's the same. It, be, my answer would be the same for other genres. It's that um, uh, what it's doing, it, it's, I, I guess we're going to talk about value. Um, it's greatest value. It's hard to represent just by looking at language. Right. And, um, the thing about hip hop, I'm not a, I'm not exactly comfortable representing it. It's not really my culture. You know, it's something that I'm a, an, a, you know, an enthusiast about, but not an expert in any way. And to imply an expertise would be in my, in my case, I think would be offensive because I just don't know what somebody who really does know hip hop and, and whatnot. It, it just, it, it doesn't make sense for me to, to represent it with authority. But what I will well, say, but you're a big fan. You can speak of it as a fan. I'll speak of it in this, in these terms. It is a utopian response to a dystopian, uh, stimulus. And as a response to dystopia, it is an effective tool for, more than just entertainment, but for self-esteem and joy, you know, and a sort of agency uh, that whether you like the lyrical content of it or not was super necessary, right? And it still does this internationally for people who are, who have a dystopian, you know, semi-dystopian or dystopian, you know, present so what i want to say about hip-hop in in those terms is uh, whether it, it doesn't need a nobel prize yeah because what it does is so, so much more of greater value than that than selling for instance the the selling of bob dylan as a as a lyricist or whatever more than or as a poet i guess i should say because i think that was the conversation people were having whether we need to try to sell uh, Eric B and uh, and Rakim is like poets, or to try to sell um, Kanye as as something more than uh, than a musician. To me, it's just not, especially for hip hop. It doesn't make sense to to enter into ter- seriously to enter into that territory. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> The, the the other the the last thing about about that genre in relationship to language I think it it has been said by by many people in that genre that that is their poetry you know for those for those kids who love it I don't dispute that at all yeah you know so absolutely and you know it's funny I want to circle back because we sort of launched into uh, you know different lines of conversation after we got you to college and. You talked about like, you know, the rebellious years or whatever, and this like lack of community. I know I'm regretting even having, it's such a, it, it is such a, uh, uh, it's funny. It's like a, uh, an obsession. It's a self, it's a product of a self, self-absorption that's located in this time that I, I always overrepresent when I talk about myself. I don't feel like, you know, I should, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. Here we are talking well, about the adolescence. More. We all, I think we all sort of relate to our adolescence in that way. To well, a I degree. still feel like one is the thing. Me too. So, okay. Yeah. But I just, you know, the, the, the thought that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, you talked about how 
there was a lack of communication between you, you and your dad in these adolescent years, chronologically speaking, and that poetry was a way back in. And it, it's such a, it's such a touching thing to think about because I think there is in pretty much every family, there's like some sort of hopefully uh, a lingua franca. I don't know what it would be, whether it's poetry or it's sports. Like for many men, yeah. it's like sports. Like yeah. my dad and I can just like, we'll, we'll sit and hang out politics too. Um, even though we don't always agree slash rarely agree on a lot of stuff, but you know, to his credit. And I think also to mine, like we, we always talk like the conversation doesn't end, but you have to have these things to talk about. And, uh, like it's pretty cool and unique, I think to have poetry. I think it's a, it's a privilege. Um, uh, but, uh, like you say, it would have been just as useful if it were just baseball or something like that. Just something, something, I don't, um, but what, I, what it really is. More than even communication, it's a short of, sort of shorthand for forgiveness that goes two ways. Yeah. You know, even being able to look at the other person and say something, anything, um, whether it's about something you're watching on TV or whether it's about, you know, something as high-minded as, as arts, you know, it's just, um, uh, it's at some point is purely gesture. Yeah, that's true. Though, I mean, I like to believe that you and your dad having some sort of a high-minded conversation about art would maybe be a little bit more beneficial than like a father and a son talking about like the real housewives of Orange County. (laughs) (laughs) I should talk to my dad about that. Yeah. Um, No, I I don't know. My dad knows so much more about it than I do. So that sometimes the conversation is mostly just me uh, hearing him tell me about something that I don't really know about. Um, But that's good, uh, especially... Uh, for him, I think he, you know, he wanted to, uh, he always wanted to be, uh, uh, an academic. And I think he, he really, I think he loves the university as a, as a more than a physical place. And the, the idea that, um, that I can, I can enter the university, if you will, with him, uh, and I, in our ideas is an important thing for him, you know, as a father. Sure. Um, so as long as we're doing something like that, then we're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll basically be on, on, on one of those lingua franca tracks. Yeah. <laughs> um, even if it's my dad telling me about poets who I don't particularly care for, you know, it's, it's still all to the good. You know? Right. Right. You're still on like familiar terrain. You can or, still go back and forth. Right. Or, you know, if he, you know, when, and if he listens to this, I can make a suggestion that we can, we can talk about other things too. (laughs) (laughs) Real housewives, dad, or anything else really. (laughs) I mean, aren't you sick of poetry? Um, and so, yeah. So before I let you go, like what, because we all know like poetry, uh, it's not, it's a peripheral art in terms of the American cultural sphere, you know, it's way on the outside and, Perhaps that's as it should be, you know, maybe back in a different age, poetry was closer to the middle. Um, there are convincing arguments, arguments that have been made, um, that I've read and heard that like, you know, maybe people who make literature should be a little bit away from the middle of the action. Um, but what is its purpose? Like, how do you conceive of its purpose? Like to, to spend all the time that you have to spend doing the work, all the reading that you have to do is included in that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is it that, 
makes it make sense for you and what function do you think it's performing mm. in our culture? This is going to be an individual answer for most people that that can be in contradiction and still be the right answer probably. But I mean, for me, it is a pleasure and also a, 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 a just a, a functioning, you know, technique to sort of, uh, to just to, to live a more healthy life, I think, uh, to, it's not what I'm, what I'm doing is at least not anymore is that sort of epiphanic kind of writing. It's more of a daily writing and, uh, I'm glad that it is now it's, it's a more modest writing and it for me is a, a healthier kind of writing. Um, uh, I should say a, a healthier sort of engagement. And, uh, so for me personally, it's just about a sort of, um, a pleasant way to pass the time and also uh, a way of leaving an art, the artifacts of, of that time and hopefully a pleasure for somebody else. And I really, it would be a lie if, if, if I said that if no one read it, it, it would, it would mean just as much. Um, but I don't, I don't think poetry that at least as far as what I'm doing with it has a responsibility. Um, but for many people it does have a civic responsibility and a humanizing responsibility. Um, but I, I think we are in such a, uh, our pluralism is really here and that we can, you know, history is over. We do not have to participate in movements anymore, uh, because of, you know, whatever genius is currently operating. We can do any different kind of writing we want. It's a great thing in some ways, but I think it also contributes to the the decentralization of it from life, uh, from from civic life, or from impo- the level of importance we maybe some of us wish it held. I don't, um, but I do know that for some people it's essential uh, in in a bigger way than it is for me. For me, it is essential, like as in like I want to do this every day. Yeah. yeah. It's like, that's what I was going to say. It's like writing and making literature as a mode of living strikes me as very healthy or like at <laughs> least a, healthier than most modes. <laughs> you yeah. could do worse, but I think there are also to, yeah, keep you could it, be a musician. Yeah. Right. <laughs> See, it's, it's, yeah, as much, as much of a God as you are, it's a very unhealthy lifestyle on that bus with all those women. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, you know, in terms of it being a, uh, a good way to live, an enriching way to live your life, to be making poetry. Uh, I also know that there are people, and I'm, I think I'm becoming more of one, or I want to become more of one uh, for a couple of reasons. Like, A, I like poetry. And so I think as a reader of poetry, like I think there are people out there who it's part of how they process life. And it's a very regular thing. You know, people who are fans of poetry as readers, you know, go to it in the way that I imagine maybe certain people go to like the holy texts, sure, you know, for instructions on how to live or at least like, you know, something stars to steer by. And, uh, the other thing that I like as a reader, and this might speak more to uh, my weaknesses as a reader or my attention span is that you can read a poetry collection fairly quickly. It's nice. You can be like, Oh, I just read a book in a day or, you know, <laughs> that's a good feeling. I like, you know, I love that feeling of like stacking up books. This this feeling of ingestion, you know, of good stuff. Right. I like 
I like the smallness of it now. I mean, before I, I was obsessed with this idea that it needs to be enormous, you know, and that it needed to uh, be sublime, uh, which it can be. But and, and I think people who go to it like they go to, you know, Proverbs or something uh, are asking for it, for that. And I think they're getting it. Um, I'm not asking for uh, that from from it right now. Um uh, I have, you know, my son is, is like two and he's like non, he doesn't stop moving until he's asleep. And, uh, if I want to do any writing and reading right now, it's just a great coincidence to sort of be reading smaller poems and writing smaller ones now. Yeah. Um, that he is, he is at the age that he is at so that you can read a short classical Japanese poem and look up and he hasn't run into the street, you know, <laughs> you know? always nice. Right. Or, and there's the other great thing. I, I don't, I haven't talked enough about that literature, but the, uh, the short, the short form poem, especially as it comes out of, uh, ancient China and classical Japanese literature is a perfect complement to the sort of daily life that, I am living and many other people are, which deals with really uh, normal everyday things in a way that is, um, uh, I guess it, it, it makes out of tedium, it makes significance, which is important for me, I think. I love poetry like that. Right. Because well, so, so, I mean, th- too often I find that poetry can reach for the sublime in a way that, uh, you know, maybe not grandiose is the right word, but it it, uh, it makes it less accessible. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it puts you at a remove as a reader. Whereas, well, yeah, it's huge, right? And uh, a transcendence is not like it's like a it's like a major event, right? How how can you be trans- having those events daily? As a poet, I, so I should I, I a young poet, I believe his name. I, this is this conversation will be like a wiki page that has a lot of like parentheses where someone needs to go back and fix this. I believe the, the poet is, is named Ricky Laurinaitis mentioned somewhere that it's unsustainable ultimately to write poetry. And I agree with him if it potentially is only the epiphanic uh, poetry. Um, the process of, of uh, just absorbing daily time and making significance out of it as a, as an act continuous through your life is a big sublime thing, but on the daily basis, is it a, it is a tedious thing. Yeah. And if you're like me, uh, a sort of nihilistic person by nature, it is important to rescue, uh, where you can some of these things to help process the sort of emptiness behind all of it, you yeah. know, not to sound dark because I, uh, I'm not that kind of nihilist. <laughs> what more, kind of nihilist are you? I would say a, a happy nihilist. If that's, if there is one, my friend, Milo Martin, who's a poet, uh, you know, here in LA, he, uh, he's got this whole thing about the utopian nihilist, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a utopian though. That's a dangerous thing. I would say that there is a, there is an, uh, negating nihilism and an, an affirming nihilism that leads through certain, I don't want to get too into it because it will make me sound like I actually know what I'm talking about, but I don't, <laughs> but there's a, I'm ready to follow you okay. right off this cliff. Well, okay. We'll go to the Kyoto school of uh, philosophers 
who I haven't read that much of, but one of their, one of this particular philosopher's ideas is that you begin with this meaninglessness and basically you have two choices. You have to either say it's it's not worth it and it's not good or you're going to affirm it. You're going to start with it being meaningless and say, okay, yes, I'll say yes to it. Um, and to me, that's that's the only healthy way out of it. And for it's like just, everything is sacred or nothing is kind of right. It, well, even, even if it's not sacred, um, even if it's meaningless that you would start by affirming it, that as an attitude and it, like basically the, to, to paraphrase and maybe incorrectly <laughs> sum up a whole bunch of writing that I haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. is to say, uh, what you begin with is an attitude before you have any understanding of it. And maybe you ultimately end with an attitude too. You don't necessarily arrive anywhere but saying yes, right? Um, and not to make too big a leap, but it, it's some of the, the, the writing that seems like it's meaningless or small offers you that same scenario, which is like, this is what life feels like. Uh, it may be a joke or it may be sublime and maybe you won't ever know, but here's the art that sort of mimics it, which is sort of what I like to read and be into. Yeah. Yeah. Like people's personal, yeah. I, art that feels real. Like, or, or like the depict, <laughs> eh, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that might be a simplistic way of saying it, but it, it's art that makes me, I don't know. It feels lived in somehow. I can't make too many definitive rules about this because I like so many different kinds. I'm thinking of books, you know? Right. Well, again, this is like, this is something that I want to read and I don't, I don't expect anybody else to naturally want to, but, um, there's the book that, that, uh, confirms something. And there's a book that replaces it for you, like changes your thinking. And both of them are ne necessary for you as a reader. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but the problem with being alive is, you know, too many swings in, in either direction is really destabilizing, right? So it's okay to read books that, that cause a tumult, but it wouldn't be acceptable if reality did too much of that. Yeah. And there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of book that can act as a corrective, a kind of, I should say, a kind of writing that can act as a corrective to that sort of destabilizing, uh, 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 just destabilizing input that is your life, you know? And hopefully when I say healthy, that's what I mean. More of a, uh, 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 an antidote to that sort of, uh, frightening kind of thing. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck on whatever's next and, and best of luck with fatherhood. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I'll need it. <laughs> Hi guys. There you go. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, there are multiple ways you can do that. You can go to Patreon. That's a new option. You can go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod and uh, pledge a monthly donation to support the show. You can also sign up for a premium subscription uh, and get access to the full archives of the show. There's all sorts of things you can do, but Patreon's a good way to support the show. If you don't have the money to do that, you can always go to iTunes and write a review of the podcast. That helps other people find the show, so uh, consider that an option as well. That was uh, Adam Soldovsky. His poetry collection is called Memory Foam. 
It's available now from Disorder Press. And uh, you can track Adam down online on Twitter. His handle there is at Adam Soldovsky. And uh, what else? I'm trying to think. Memory foam. Buy the collection for the poetry fan in your life. It's a great gift. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget uh, about the app, the Other People app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a free app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen to this program, to keep track of this program. You just get the app. It's free. You download it to your device. Once you have the app, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to go deeper, if you want access to all 400 and some odd episodes, you just get a, a premium subscription for as little as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you everything. Like 440-something episodes available at your fingertips anywhere you go. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. So get the app. The app itself is free. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So, uh, yeah, ephedrine, cold meds, you know, trying to uh, knock this cold out. I've given myself, this is my second day in a row of rest. I'm trying to get better about letting myself rest, not getting myself uh, too uh, obnoxious in terms of resistance. You know, like I've still worked, but I haven't been exercising. So I just let my body take it easy. My body's telling me that I need to take it easy. My body fell out of balance. Let's give it a moment to rebalance. But I feel like after two days with a cold, I think on day three, I might have to do something. At some point in every illness, what I find is that you get, you know, you get to a certain level and then you got to break through. You got to push. Will that happen tomorrow? I don't know. Hang on a second. Getting summoned. Please remember that, uh, (laughs) sorry. I was just checking Twitter. Please remember that Patricia Highsmith had pet snails and that uh, Sigmund Freud had a professional barber come and trim his beard every morning. Also, did you know that Sigmund Freud's wife uh, put his toothpaste on his toothbrush for him every day? I find these little facts interesting. That's all for now. Thanks to uh, Adam Soldovsky for uh, coming over here and doing the show. Be sure to get his collection. It's called Memory Foam. Available now from Disorder Press. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode, another conversation with another writer. Until then, I hope you uh, are having a happy holiday. Okay? Or a happy... Just trying to get through this weird, dark period in our history without going too crazy. So fucking bleak. Let's hope the Electoral College does its job. Just do your job. Where are some faithless electors? Where are some people of courage? We need 37 of them to not vote for this uh, Yahoo. Anyway, I digress. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. (laughs) 